recently interviewed a good friend and author, Dr. Daniel Friedman, who just published a new book entitled Leading Well from Within, which you can hear on Podcast 601. We discuss the science, stories, and practice of high-performance conscious leadership. Whether you lead others at work or as a parent at home, you'll discover new ways of thriving in your life, especially under stress, so you can make an even bigger difference in the lives of others. In short, when you learn to lead from within, you can lead well in the world. If you want to grow and lead from a higher level of consciousness, check out podcast 601 with Dr. Daniel Friedland speaking about leading well from within. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all my listeners, like I do every time, Eric, uh, for joining us from around the world to listen to what I say, the words of wisdom from our authors. And today, uh, I have Eric Weiner joining me. And Eric is the author of a new book called The Geography of Genius. He also is prior author of a book called The Geography of Bliss. He's a New York Times bestselling author. And he's been called smart, funny, and utterly delightful. Uh, His books have been translated into 20 languages. A number of high schools and universities have incorporated the books into their curricula. Uh, He's got the original Voices Award and a finalist for the Barnes & Noble Discovery Award. Um, His second book was Man Seeks God. You can find more about Eric at just Eric Weiner Books, and that's E-R-I-C-W-E-I-N-E-R books.com. There you can find his blog, his appearances, information about his books, and so on. So Eric, thanks for taking some time with us today and talking with us about this book called The Geography of Genius. And I reached out to you about the book. Um, and the reason was I was fascinated not only about what you were writing, but really about the, the people, the stories you were writing about. And, you know, you mentioned in the introduction to your book that you've been watching evolving or rather de-evolving concepts of genius for a while. You stated that you're fascinated by the subject of genius in which the way a naked man is fascinated by the subject of clothing. Are we really in a downward genius spiral, or is there hope for us? (laughs) That's my question. That's a good question. I would say uh, yes to both. We are on a downward genius spiral, and yes, there is hope for us. Uh Um, You know, I, I, I do believe that we are not producing the level of genius um, that we as human beings have done in, in centuries past. And I realize that's, that's a tough thing to prove. Um, but, you know, having studied uh, geniuses from 2500 BC up until last Tuesday, um, that, is, that is my conclusion. Um, but, of course, there's plenty of hope for us. And there's been, you know, cycles of creativity throughout history. Um, spurts and then, um, you know, recessions of genius, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, We're certainly producing plenty in terms of technology today. But, you know, one thing I discovered really researching this book is that, you know, in lots of these places I look at, these genius clusters, I call them, such as ancient Athens and Renaissance Florence, they weren't really about technology. They were about art or philosophy, uh, the world of ideas. Um, And technology was not 
central to what they considered creative. You know, if if Steve Jobs were to time travel to, uh, well, first be reincarnated, then time travel to uh, Athens in 450 BC, they would not be impressed with his iPhone um, <laughs> because it was just a gadget. It was just a thing. It it didn't really represent a, a, a big idea. Yeah, and it's, I think, while Steve Jobs probably, you know, obviously used lots of critical thinking skills, and he he definitely, you even write about it, and I'm, I got a question about it later here for you. Um, in our world today, probably still considered a genius. Now, you wrote about Galton's landmark book called The Heredity of Genius, published in 1869, in which Galton stated that genius was part of our heredity and was genetic. Now, we know it's not true, and that geniuses are made, and that Edison said it was 98% perspiration and 1% inspiration, uh, which is one of his famous quotes. If this is true, what does it take to be a genius in our world, and what's the best environment to cultivate geniuses in? Ooh, um, I think if I had to sort of, you know, distill it to one thing, um, I think the places that cultivate genius have something in common with the geniuses themselves. And that's this one really psychological trait of openness to experience. You know, that's what psychologists have identified as the single most important trait for creative people. And looking at these places throughout history, I realized they also possess that, that openness to experience. And and sometimes it, it, it took on a very literal sense. You know, like if you look at ancient Athens, now Athens, of course, now we associate with Socrates and Plato and all these great ideas, but, you know, it was a bit of a dump. You know, it didn't really have that much going for it compared to the hundreds of other Greek city-states. But one thing it did have going for it was it had this port of Piraeus, and they sailed, and they went out there and uh, the truth is they borrowed, or if you're feeling less generous, they stole ideas from others because they were open to uh, the possibility that there may be great ideas out there that were not invented here. Um, and and that's why, you know, so many of these places um, are at a crossroads. Um, that's why North Korea is not a place of genius right now. It's not that people don't have good genes. They do. It's not that they don't work hard. They do. It's that it's a closed society and it's not open to experience. So look, Eric, you mentioned, you know, oh, Pl- Plato, Socrates, and all these geniuses that came out of, uh, out of Athens. And your, your first book, or your first chapter of your book, which is called Genius is Simple Athens, as I said, it's probably the longest chapter you've got. Why do you believe that the Greeks had such a breeding ground for geniuses? What was it about the area, the environment, that really set it up? Well, it was actually a pretty difficult environment. And this is really one of the great misconceptions about these golden ages, these places of genius, is that they're somehow akin to paradise. Um, they're not. They're difficult places. You know, Athens in 450 B.C. was, was something of a dump, even by the standards of the day. Um, you know, and other people from other Greek city-states and Persia and other areas would come to Athens and say, really, Athens, this is it? Um, so life was hard, and when, when we're faced with constraints and challenges, we respond to them, sometimes, 
other times we roll over and go back to sleep, you know. Um, the Greeks did not roll over and go back to sleep. They rose to the occasion. Um, and, uh, you know, Plato has a very simple quote that really just sums it all up. He said, uh, what's honored in a country will be cultivated there. And that's the essence of it. Um, we mm. get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve. And the Greeks honored ideas, the world of ideas. They honored philosophy, of course. They honored great art. And therefore, they cultivated it. And as I said, they also were great explorers. And they went out there and they borrowed or stole ideas from others. And again, to quote Plato, he said, what the Greeks borrow from foreigners they perfect. Um, and that's something that I've seen to be true of all geniuses throughout the ages and all places of genius, is that they're willing to borrow or steal, you know, depending on your perspective. Um, that was true of ancient Greece, and it's true of Silicon Valley today. Uh, the, the truth mm. is not that much is invented in Silicon Valley or has been. Not the cell phone, not venture capital. Um, ideas are perfected there. Um, so those are just a couple of the things that the ancient Greeks, really the ancient Athenians, that's who we're talking about here. When we talk about you know, the Greek miracle, we're really talking about the city-state of Athens for the most part. Um, that's a couple of things they had going for them. Well, I like how you distilled it down, the simplicity of it, you know, and I think it's what we get, what we cultivate, and I think culture is a big part of this. Now, I want to make sure I pronounce this city right. You were in Asia, and is it Hangzhou? Hangzhou. Sipping the tea. Hangzhou. Hangzhou. Sipping this perfect cup of tea, you said. And you said that you, that you once met a, a person there who was a reformed coffee addict. Who told you no more coffee, uh, that it made him think more quickly, but tea made him think more deeply. I love this one because I'm yeah. such a tea drinker myself. Do, do the well, Chinese, that means you're a deep, that means Chinese, you're a deep thinker, Greg. <laughs> well, I mean, I actually have a company called Tea for We, which so it, it just kind of goes with it. So it yeah. says, does my question for you this is do the chinese culture does the chinese culture versus the western culture have a better environment to cultivate these geniuses because they do take things slower look they're the ones that you know working on tai chi and moving slow and doing things a little slower although when you look at japan i wouldn't say that's true when you look at china you don't actually see that so what's the mystery here Okay, it, it, it is uh, a mystery, and the mystery is essentially this, uh, what happened to China? Um, you know, so the, the time period that I examine, you know, 11th, 12th, 13th century, um, Hangzhou in particular was this booming city of more than a million people producing great art, philosophy, scientific inventions, um, all kinds of stuff, and... Um, and at the same time, you know, meanwhile, Europe is, you know, in the Dark Ages, they're picking lice out of each other's hair, and it, what we would call backwards. Um, and somewhere along the way, China lost its edge, um, its creative edge. Um, but, you know, the Chinese have a cyclical view of history as opposed to our Western, more linear view of history. And so what goes up goes down, and what goes down goes up again. And I think... Um, I would watch China carefully. I think they could be on the brink of not only an economic revival, but a creative revival as well. Um, 
Chinese creativity. Why do you, why do you say that, Eric? Why, what are you noticing about the shifts in the culture in China or what's happening in China that would it, get it, it, you it, to it, say, oh, you think there's going to be a revival of this genius um, outflowing from, from China? Well, on the positive side is the fact that they're increasing in confidence. And that, you know, when I went to China, there was a lot of hand-wringing on television and elsewhere about what they call the innovation gap. So they're aware of the problem, and they're aware of their history, um, I think. And they they know that they were once great in a creative point of view, from a creative point of view, not just the world's factory. Um, and it's not guaranteed, you're right. Um, but... You see the confidence in a city like Hangzhou today. I met a man named Jack Ma, who's a fascinating guy. He's one of the richest men in China in the world. He's worth some 20-plus billion dollars. He started a company you may have heard of called Alibaba. Um, it's sort of the Amazon and the Google and, and the eBay of, uh, of China rolled into one. And he started off very poor and um, sort of hanging out outside of... Uh, the Shangri-La Hotel in uh, Hangzhou right after the opening uh, when China opened to the West. And he would hang out and and sort of sidle up to foreign tourists and offer to be their tour guide in exchange for English lessons. And he picked up English, which he speaks quite well, and he picked up a certain Western-style gumption that he sort of married, I think, with uh, his Chinese proclivities and um, that, I think, gave him, made him well-suited to start this company that made him a fortune. And when I mm -hmm. asked him, yeah, when I asked him, like, what does China need to do to regain uh, the golden age from, say, the Song Dynasty, he said something fascinating. He said they need to reconnect with their spiritual and religious roots. Now, if you know anything wow, about China that. these days, you know that it's not really something popular to say. Religion is kind of a no-no right. as a subject. He's talking mm -hmm. about Taoism, Confucianism, you know, Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, and you do see a resurgence of Confucianism in China. Um, people are, including the wealthy, who are realizing that money can't buy everything and are looking elsewhere for satisfaction. Um, I think if China reconnects with its past, um, it could do quite well. Um, but, you know, it's not a guarantee. I love what you said. So you actually got an opportunity to interview him. So, you know, and here's a man who's making billions of dollars. Uh, actually, almost, it's a eBay on, on steroids. Yeah, um, it is. So when you were in Florence, you set out to answer a question, if money and genius were interrelated, what did you find out about the city, the connection between the wealthy merchants and the cultivation of this genius, um, as as it were, in Florence. Well, I mean, Greg, we have we have one of these myths that, and there's so many myths surrounding creativity and genius. And one of them is that you know money plays no role. You know, think of the romantic image of the starving artist. Um, reminds me of a story about about Mahatma Gandhi, who was a real aesthetic and lived with nothing. One of his aides says it takes a lot of money to keep the Mahatma in poverty, um, and there's some truth to that <laughs> with with Florence as well. That you know, if you're going to be a starving artist, you need a patron, and Florence was blessed with one of the, if not the greatest, 
um, family of patrons ever, of course, the Medici's. And and they had money, but money alone is not enough. They also had what we might call taste, what I prefer to think of as discernment. Um, they were talent scouts, bar none. Um, and they put that money to good use. And they, um, you know, they, they were very good at spotting talent and nurturing it. And um, and that sort of filtered down to the rest of society, so that you know everybody in Florence was an appreciator of good art. And it started with the Medici's, I think. And um, you know they made their money in the cloth trade and in banking mainly. And mm. and yet they were able to spark this Renaissance that had very little to do with banking, um, although. There, there were some create. There was some creative banking going on from the Renaissance, but that's not why everyone goes to Florence today to see the creative banking. They go to see Michelangelo's David and, and other great works of art. Right. Why do you think that those merchants and those people with those money were funding um, folks like that? What? What? I mean, I always look at it and say, what's in it for them? Um, was it the was it the cultivation of greater um, consciousness, awareness in the area? What What was it? That's a really good question. Um, my, my guide at the time, a man named Eugene, a wonderful man, um, he suggested... Yeah, I read me, about Eugene. <laughs> yeah, an art, art <laughs> historian and a great guy. Uh-huh. And he, he suggested to me that they were partly in it uh, to avoid hell, uh, literally. You know, uh, back oh, okay. then especially, hell was was not a metaphor for a really bad place or a really hot day. It was a real place that people feared going to. Most people mm-hmm. did. And uh, along comes this notion of purgatory, which is a lot better than hell, but you know, you need to contribute to the church, right? And the way, one way to contribute is through great art. So that was clearly one motivation of the Medici family was uh, okay. to, you know, to, to produce that art. But it went deeper than that. Um, if you listen to, you know, some of the, the quotes and the sayings from Cosimo Medici or Lorenzo Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was also a poet, by the way, um, they, they, they got it. Um, they appreciated art for art's sake. You know, um, I, I mean, think, go back to the year 1400 when, you know, Florence is had just been decimated by the Black Death, the bubonic plague, maybe 50 years earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got, mm-hmm. Milan is trying to trying to devour them, you know, their, their great enemy. And they hold this contest um, to uh, to build baptistry doors on the, on the main church. And, and they hold an artistic contest, sort of a Florence has got talent, you know, uh, in the middle of this really bad situation. Um, and that, to me, goes back to what Plato said. What is honored in a country is cultivated there. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question because it remains something of a mystery, which is why did they honor great art, especially during such a difficult time? Um, I don't fully know the answer to that, uh, but they clearly did. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, when you think about it, the funding of, you say, starving artists, starving philosophers, all these people at that time. It's interesting because I never thought about the connection, but I think for my listeners out there, and there truly was a connection, and there is, even in Silicon Valley, you know, we'll get to that question in a minute. One of the, the things that I was totally unaware of 
that you enlightened me on, and you write this. You said there's a bit of Scotland in all of us, whether we know it or not. You state if we if we have flushed a toilet, used a refrigerator, or ridden a bicycle, that we can thank the Scots. I don't think that many of my listeners out there, including myself, would have known this fact. So why was Scotland such a mecca for inventions and genius? And, you know, in addition to flushing toilets and riding bicycles, um, you know, elections and, and democracy itself in this country can be traced to Scotland. You know, a lot of the founding fathers um, spent time there. Um, Benjamin Franklin, foremost among them, um, spent a lot I'm of time. I'm glad you're so optimistic. I'm glad you're so optimistic. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Especially why not? after the, the yeah. news that we've gotten here just in the last 24 hours about Hillary Clinton's emails again. Well, we've had a good run of some 250 years, haven't we, Greg? So let's let's be thankful yeah. for that. A friend, of exactly. mine said, a friend of mine once said, when in doubt, be thankful. Um, it's not yeah. bad yeah. advice. Um, yeah. So we're talking late 18th century. Yeah. Late 18th I say, century. I'm sorry, I just had to throw that in. It yeah, was just something no, I, I couldn't No, I, 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 I walked right into that. Um, <laughs> again, unlikely, right? Late 18th century, um, the Scots have been swallowed up by the English, essentially. They're part of, you know, Great Britain now. Um, they're kind of way up there, a bit on the edge of the world. Uh, Edinburgh's a small, dirty, smelly city of some 40,000 people. Um, but they have they they nurtured this inventiveness. Um, I call it the age of improvement. They they sort of married big ideas like economics and Adam Smith, um, or the philosophy of David Hume, with very practical matters. Um, James Watt and the, the steam engine. Um, they the Scots always bring it down to earth. Uh, they never just float off into into space um, the way maybe French intellectuals do sometimes. Um, and so they, they really believed that anything could be improved. Like, how can we make this better was a question that the Scots did and still do ask themselves. And so you saw this age of improvement really come to a fore in the field of medicine. You know, uh, chloroform anesthesia, um, all kinds of surgical techniques um, and, and other medical advances were really perfected uh, in Scotland. I mean, if you wanted to be a doctor in the late 18th century, you studied at Edinburgh University, and a lot of American mm -hmm. students did go over there. Um, so to me, like, medicine sort of epitomized it. It was, you know, because if you think about it, medicine has its theoretical basis. You need to know chemistry and biology and the hard sciences. But ultimately, it has a very specific goal, which is improvement, improving the health of the patient in, the, in that case. Um, and the Scots just had a, they had a, I guess what you have to call chutzpah. I don't know what the Scottish word for chutzpah is, um, but, but they had that. Um, they, they had this sort of we're small, but we matter attitude. And they had this really interesting way of conversing. It's called flighting. Have you heard of flighting? Um, F-L-Y-T-I-N-G. And I sat down with a, a Scottish professor at Edinburgh University. I said, well, what? You mentioned flighting. I said, what the heck is this? He said, flighting is the ritual humiliation of your opponent through verbal violence. The 
ritual humiliation of your opponent through verbal violence. And I said to him, I said, it sounds brutal. And he said, oh, it is, you know, with that glint in his eye. And it's just this notion that you can really go at it and have a freewheeling debate um, and say whatever's on your mind. But after, and this is really important, after a good round of flighting, uh, it's no hard feelings. You know, you go to the pub and have a pint in your ten uh, and live to flight another day. Um, we've kind of lost that here in this country, I think, that things are taken mm-hmm. very personally and um, and there are hard feelings and, and people feel that they cannot say what's on their mind, so that is sort of constricted and then comes out in perverse ways, shall we say. Um, so I, they had a very healthy attitude towards conversation. Um, David Hume said that the first requirement for a topic was that it be conversable. Um, and and they, you know, they had a very active social life. Um, they had these clubs, weird clubs, like the six-foot club where you had to be at least six feet tall, which was not easy back then, the 717 Club that met at 717 p.m. for some reason, um, and just all these social clubs and pubs. And and the thing is that they were not um, hierarchical. Anybody could go. And so you had people yeah. of different social strata mixing, and that is hugely important. And I hate to be such a downer, but have we lost that, I have to wonder aloud, that, that mixing of classes and and people from different walks of life. Um, that's what makes cities so creative. It's one of the things, you know, that that, that sort yeah. of combustion that goes on. It, I just thought that whole chapter was just fascinating. And, you know, and, and another one for me that just, like I, this whole book, I have to admit, as I was going through it, I'm like, wow, I, I had no clue about this. And I think that's what's so great about the geography of genius. And one of those places is Calcutta. You state, if any place can illustrate the relationship between uh, chance and genius, it's this monstrous, bewildering, teeming city of Calcutta. You state that between 1840 and 1920, Calcutta was one of the world's greatest intellectual capitals, the heart of a creative flourishing that spanned its arts, literature, science, and religion. Why was this so, and who were a few of the geniuses that were discovered during that period from 1840 to 1920 out of Calcutta? Uh, Well, to answer the latter part of your question, um, probably the most towering genius of that time was Rabindranath Tagore, um, who was a poet, essayist, dramatist, uh, activist, educator, uh, and was the first non-Westerner to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, And uh, there were scientists like Bose, who um, who did some pioneering work in the fields of radio. Um, there were lots and lots of writers who may not be familiar to Western readers, but who were terrific. There were more books published in Calcutta than, than in any city in the world except for London. Um, and, you know, I, I chose Calcutta for a couple of reasons. One is because it's so unexpected, right? We associate Calcutta right. with... Mother Teresa and, and poverty. Poverty. Yeah, and, and yeah. just really despair almost. And uh, it has largely become that today. Um, but it it was for a time thriving intellectually, and it really speaks to this notion of chaos and the relationship between chaos and creative genius. Um, you, know, you go to Calcutta and, and you are just overwhelmed with sensory input. Um, and 
and it turns out there's this fascinating connection between creativity and and chaos. Um, there's a whole line of work looking at how chaos theory and creativity overlap. Um, and, and I sort of I come to the conclusion that we need some disorder, some chaos even, in order to be creative. Now, if you think about it, if you're going from the old order to the new order, which is really what creativity is, the old way of thinking about things to the new way, you need to pass through a, a turbulent state, a chaotic state. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of companies, for instance, today, they want the creativity without the disruption, without the disorder. Um, and I don't right. think you can have one without the other. And I'd agree with you there. I think that chaos isn't isn't always a per- precursor to creativity but you know as you create and you evolve products and design new things and so on you're bound to get you're bound to get some chaos in there you know as i said i'm writing a book right now uh, called hacking the gap a journey from intuition to innovation and beyond and you know all of this is so fascinating to me what you've written now i'm going to end our interview here uh, you're in silicon valley you're in a bookstore with your daughter and you see a book wedged in between who was benjamin franklin and who was albert einstein and it was a book on steve jobs right. and you know you ask yourself the question um, could he be considered a genius? Uh, and, you know, kind of wedged in between Benjamin Franklin and Albert Einstein. Right. So, what is it? What is it? Number one. Let's first part of that question is, uh, you come to the conclusion that yes, Steve Jobs for our era is a genius. I mean, that's what you basically said. Secondly, what is it about Silicon Valley, if you really look at it? that helps to breed this genius. And I think one of the things you said was risk, the ability to take risk. Um, you know, so comment, if you would, about Silicon Valley and breeding of geniuses and, and risk. Well, you know, you, you can't really have one without the other. Um, you, genius requires risk. Um, and, you know, if you look at, Florence at that time, people took great risks and they risked losing a lot. Um, and the reason Silicon Valley happened and in, in came of age in California is not coincidental. We I mean, think about it, you know, I mean, New York, Boston, Washington, these were the power centers and the economic centers of the country um, in the 20th century, in the, especially in the early 20th century. But out west in California, you could start fresh, you could take risks. And you could fail. I mean, as one computer executive said, and I love this quote, he said, uh, if you fail in California, your family won't know and your neighbors won't care. And I think there's, there's some truth to that. Now, we do have to separate, I think, the, the birth of Silicon Valley, which I trace back all the way to the 19-teens and, and actually the sinking of the Titanic, which led to a requirement that all ships carry radios, and Palo Alto, California was the center of radio technology then. And that, mm-hmm. I think, led to this, this, this deep culture of tinkering and, um, and inventiveness. Um, and it's certainly that, that culture of failure existed for a long time in Silicon Valley. I'm not 100% sure it still exists. Um, you know, you know, this is a, a good way to sort of tie things up is, uh, you know, these places don't last forever. They tend to be pretty fragile, these, these genius clusters. 
few decades, maybe a century. And so there's no guarantee that Silicon Valley is going to keep on being Silicon Valley. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they need to continue to take chances. And the problem is that success breeds complacency and it breeds a kind of arrogance, you know, and and that's sort of the conclusion I reach about places like Athens, you know, why they eventually lost their shine is because they became arrogant. And if you're arrogant, mm-hmm. you have no room for ignorance. You have no room for acknowledging that there's something you don't know. And if you think about it, Greg, that's kind of at the heart of creativity is knowing there's something you don't know and looking out there for it. Um, I don't know if Silicon Valley has gotten to that point of being arrogant. I think their companies like Google and Apple are kind of aware of the danger, and they, that's why they try to act like small companies, even though they're quite big. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but well, I would I would yeah. say you're you're right in your assessment of it. And again, you got to realize that the amount of money that's concentrated there to throw at new projects and new ideas, just like you were talking about in in Florence. Um, it's there. I, I would concur that there is this, this uh, element of, of uh, complacency, um, arrogance. Um, you look at what's happening there, what it costs to live there, just even to be there. Um, you know, it's, it's quite an interesting place these days. And I think you're right. I think uh, they will at one point lose their edge. So with that being said, I'll leave this as my last question. If you were to say there was a new place that would evolve where the environments were perfect to create more genius and everything set up, where might that be, Eric? Well, Greg, if I were able to predict that, um, I would not not be talking to you right now. I'd be on my yacht in the Mediterranean sipping a drink with an umbrella in it. So let's first of all clarify that. that These are are really complex. But it's worth asking. It's, it's worth, worth asking, asking. now, and I, I, it, it is a good question. Um, you know, I would look to to India, to uh, maybe to Bangalore, which so far has played the role of kind of back office to to Silicon Valley, to leaping to the front office. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I admit I'm a fan of India and all things Indian. Um, and it, 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 there's a great history of creativity there. And I, I can see India leapfrogging uh, over the West and, and possibly over China as well, because it is a democracy and because it is more open to experience, you know, that, that term again. Um, some interesting places are Tallinn, the capital of Estonia. Um, mm-hmm. The technology that we use to conduct at least part of this conversation with uh, Skype was invented in Estonia, um, mm-hmm. along with yeah. other innovations. Along with um, a lot of other innovations. Yeah, it's it's yeah, a, yeah. look what it has going for it. It's a small country, and a lot of these places are small. Uh, it's it's got chutzpah. It's got something to prove. It's sort of people are hungry. The, people are hungry, uh, not just well, not literally hungry, but hungry for success. And Correct. there's sort of sandwiched between east and west um and they mm-hmm. have a strong culture that has been pushing back for a couple decades now or if not longer against russian culture of course they're former members of the soviet union um and those are the kind of places that on, on those borderline places that could be interesting uh to watch um you know I could. What I always like to say is, you know, it's going to be La Paz, Bolivia, but not for another ten thousand years. And 
come back and right. check with me then. But I think yeah. it will be, you know, it will be someplace unexpected, someplace small, someplace feisty, um, someplace uh, that has that openness to experience combined with, and we didn't really talk about this, but it might be a good place to wrap up with, combined with a lot of discernment, right? Because Las Vegas mm-hmm. is a pretty tolerant place, and if you've ever been there, it's open to experience. Um, but uh, it's not exactly a place of genius. No, and I'm not certain it's a, it's a, an area where there's a level of consciousness uh, however you want to look at it, spiritually, vibratory, that would breed that. But again, hard to say. Um, but for my listeners, what you have done today in the time that we've been on, Eric, it's really enlightened us about how certain parts of the world really have affected uh, not only this uh, uh, discovery of genius, but really the flourishing of genius. And for my listeners today, we've been on with Eric Weiner. Eric is the author of a book called The Geography of Genius. He's also the author of a book called The Geography of Bliss and Man Seeks God. Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on. For those of you who want to learn more, you will go to books. There you can learn more about Eric himself. We're going to post up the links to his Facebook, to his website, and uh, to any social media sites that he's got to be able to connect with him. Eric, thanks for being on, and I really was very, very enlightened today, not only just fascinated, but enlightened by not only the research you've done, but uh, your background in this area. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Greg. I really enjoyed this, and, and perhaps you're on the road to genius yourself. I recently had a wonderful interview with author Jill Woolard about her new book entitled Intuitive, Being Connected with Spirit, Find Your Center, and Choose an Intentional Life. If you want to learn more about the powerful intuitive voice within you which guides you and can have the ability to change your life for the good and forever, I recommend that you listen to Podcast 602 with Jill Willard and myself as we explore ways you can have a greater access to your intuition.